Welcome to The Mastering Show. This is the show where we cover all aspects of mastering. So if you're interested in that subject, hopefully we have some tasty bits for you guys to enjoy. I'm Steve Cherubino. I'm just one of your hosts. And also joining us, our other co-host, the master of mastering himself, Ian Shepard. What's up, Ian? Hi, Steve. How are you doing? Doing very good. You know, I, th- I told you before the show, nothing's going wrong in my life. Everything's just peachy keen. And I'm the same. But listen, before we start, I have to, we have to deal with something. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is, this is show number five and we have a problem, which is you keep saying mastering. Okay. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about mastering. Okay. So can you try that for me, please? Welcome to the mastering show. <laughs> no, no, no. Tr- no, no. Try it again. Mastering. I'm not going to say it like that. I'm from Philly. You're going to, you're going to, to me, it's <laughs> no, okay. mastering. All right. Okay. That's beautiful that's word. Fine. It's <laughs> It's a beautiful word. All right. It's a beautiful subject. Welcome to the Mastering Show. You happy now? Mastering. Ma. Mastering. Mastering. There it is. We don't that's talk good. like that here. <laughs> no, that's cool. That's fine. Okay, so this is episode five. And so so we've done, we had an introduction show. If And if anybody listening hasn't heard these earlier shows, you should definitely go back and listen to them now. Uh, so we had an introduction. What is Mastering? We had... Uh, the the three M's of mastering, and you'll have to listen to the show to find out what they were. And then we're going backwards through the mastering chain. So we started off with limiting, then we use compression, and this week is EQ. So uh, how do you feel about EQing a whole... Because this is the interesting thing about mastering. Just in case anybody's not completely clear, when you're mastering, you're only working on a stereo track. You know, there's this kind of gray area where people do this thing called stem mastering, where you have, you split out maybe the drums and the guitars and the keyboards and the vocals and stuff. But I personally always prefer to work on just stereo files. So how do you feel about EQing a stereo track, Steve, as opposed to, you know, a, a channel within a mix? Well, you know, in my opinion, you have to get it right. I mean, any t- any touches you make to that master track or to a stereo track affects everything. So it's probably a lot more touchy and you got to be very precise. Whereas, you know, in a mix, you could get away with like a couple EQ slips here or there, I would think. So it just seems like uh, you got to, you really need to know what you're doing and, and probably not be too heavy handed with the EQ. Okay. I mean, is it something that you do? I don't do, do, you, do it. Do I don't do my own mastering, but. So you don't, but you don't even put it like a stereo EQ in on the master fader of a mix? I do not. Okay. I mean, that's. I, th- I think you're probably right. I think w- with all of this stuff, it's a kind of great power and great responsibility situation. And I, I generally recommend people don't put processing on the master bus of a mix. I feel like get the mix as good as you possibly can and then move on to the mastering stage. But I do actually sometimes put a, a gentle overall EQ on a mix. You know, if I'm just listening to it and thinking, oh, I need more weight in the kick drum and the, the bass guitar is not quite coming through at that point, I think maybe, well, I will put just a little bit of EQ over the whole thing rather than going through channel by channel and trying to EQ everything separately because it's it's just less work, you know. Um, when I get to the end, I might disable that EQ and then come to it with fresh ears at the mastering stage. Or if it's working, I might leave that in. Um, what's really interesting, I think, is that, I mean, you're absolutely right. You're processing the entire mix so everything you do affects everything in the mix but the fascinating thing for me even after all these years is that quite often you can make it seem like you're affecting 
little bits of the mix. I mean, the number of times people have come to me in a session and said, oh, can you just bring out the vocal a little bit? Or, you know, that guitar's a little bit too in, in your face. Can you pull that back a bit? And of course, the, the actual answer is, well, no, because we're working on a stereo mix. We don't have control of those individual elements. What's amazing is with the right little bit of EQ, quite often you can make it seem like you've done exactly what they wanted. Does that ever happen to you? You ever found that? Yeah, I mean, I guess if you know the the frequency of that instrument, you can manipulate it in that way. Um, you know, I, I do that in my mixes on certain things, but um, it's an interest. It's interesting how you bring that up and that you can accommodate those people. Whereas, uh, you know, you could probably be a snob about it and say, no, go fix that in the mix. <laughs> I'm the mastering engineer. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, it's almost like a magic act. I would I would assume. Well, the funny thing, I mean, I've thought about it a lot because it, it, it is, it's kind of amazing to me that, that, that it works, that you can, and you can have tiny little EQ moves and they have quite a big effect. I think what it is, is that going back to something we've said in previous episodes, everything you do is colored by the monitoring. So it's fairly uncommon for somebody to have, say, way too much 2K on a guitar and not enough on a vocal, because that would just sound wrong to them in their mix situation. What they might feel is that or they might have ended up with not quite enough of that frequency on both elements, and they notice one or other aspect in particular, and that's what they focus on. So then as the mastering engineer, you come in and you tweak that little area that needs attention, and suddenly both things work better. You know, nice. so, so the other thing that happens is that people say, oh, can you do such and such because of this thing that's been bothering them, like the vocal or the guitar or whatever it is, and you do something and they go, yeah, that's fantastic. Oh, and it's done this and this and this as well. I guess so, if, they, if they want that. That's that's right. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's all a question of what you focus on at any one moment. Um, it's really interesting because I, th I think EQ is probably the key element of mastering. I mean, we've talked about how you need to get the level right first. And we've talked about how you might want to get the right level of control in the dynamics of different songs, you know, internally and relative to each other. But you could do all of those things. And if the EQs are wrong, you know, you're nowhere. You've got nothing right. to, to deal with. Like, And the kind of extreme example is a compilation album. If somebody sends you, you know, maybe you've got 20 songs that have to be put together that span... 10 or 15 years of somebody's career from a whole range of different studios, a whole range of different engineers, different styles, and you've somehow got to bring all of those things together and make them work as a satisfying collection of songs, you know, and you can listen all the way through without kind of just being pulled up short by some problem with the sound. The chances are the EQ, that even if they were all really well EQ'd to start with, there's going to be differences in there right. because, you know, there's, there's a, a huge... I was... Okay, so you're going to have to imagine now that I'm I'm holding my arms apart, kind of two meters apart. You know, if if that's the range of the total kind of sounds that you could get onto a onto a CD or into a digital file, and then now I'm holding my hands about a foot apart. You know, if that's the range of what is kind of musically acceptable with like I don't know something super bassy at one end and something super bright at the other end, I probably bring things down to a range of maybe like an inch in the middle of that kind of spectrum of wow. possibilities, right? Yeah. But even within that, there's a degree of taste. And there are other engineers who might move around further outside of that. And, you know, people out in the world, nobody's going to listen to it and go, whoa, that sounds wrong. You know, they'll, I mean, just, I don't know, have you come across a band called The Strokes? I know of The Strokes. 
they were, I mean, they're, they're a few years ago now, but it was kind of indie guitar, I guess, alt rock kind of stuff. And for me, it just sounds really dull, really dry, very little deep bass, hardly any highs at all. A really kind of kind of classic, what might people say, a warm analog sound, I think kind of almost muffled. And so that's kind of on the borderline for me. If, if I was mastering that, I would be suggesting that they, you know, they just sweeten up the EQ a little bit. Right. And that was obviously a decision that they didn't want to make. Um, but it completely works. It's not like I listen to it and think, well, that's wrong or that was a mistake. You know, it's okay. That was an artistic decision. That's what they went with. And actually I quite like it. Um, same thing would apply if I had to go back. And I mean, I, I love Prince, uh, you know, classic era Prince from way back, late eighties. Um, if I was given that stuff to remaster, I would have a real wrestling match with myself because the sound that he had then was really kind of tight and dry and lean. Again, very little deep bass, um, any of that kind of stuff. Later on, he moved away from that. And I would be kind of looking at it going, well, should I, as a mastering engineer, bring some of that deep bass in? You mean on you know, a compilation or, album? Yeah, or if I was given the album to remaster. You know, okay. sometimes you're asked to do a kind of a deluxe reissue or whatever, and you're given the original album, and you have to you have to decide, am I going to stick with exactly the sound that they chose? Or not. I mean, I remember a while back there were a bunch of Elvis reissues where um, I I never heard them, but I I know that there was a, an outcry from people saying this doesn't sound right, and somebody had had gone in and tried to quote modernize the sound really by adding all of this frequency content in there. It's not that it wasn't there in the original releases; you just didn't hear it in the same way, um, and yeah, people didn't like it. It didn't sound like what they expected Elvis to sound like, right? right. Um, and it's, to, to take a perfect example, the the Beatles remasters, all of that stuff was reissued, uh, I don't know how long ago, maybe five or six years ago, was it, perhaps? Um, that, to me, is a perfect example of they just got it absolutely right because everything sounds as you expect it to sound, but better. That, yeah, that's the way it should be. Nothing sounds nothing sounds wrong. Nothing's, and then there's some of them you go, oh, I, I don't remember that bass or, you know, the, the way that those vocals cut through, but it's really nice. It, huh. it, you know, it's just it's just better. And that, that, of course, is the goal. I see. Anyway, that was a bit of a tangent. Um, it's okay, though. It all relates to EQ. <laughs> it does all relate to EQ because... So the other thing to say is probably... I think we touched on this in the, the three M's episode where we were talking about mindset. Um, so just to be completely clear... Mastering is not putting one EQ setting and one compression or limiting setting on a whole collection of songs and running them through with the same setting. The, the key thing about mastering is you take each song individually and optimize that song on its own basis. And that makes perfect sense in terms of, say, a compilation album where stuff has come from all over the place. Yeah, but, but are you trying to get all those songs to be consistent with each other? Consistent, yeah, not the same. I mean, this is a... Now, I can't remember whether I've mentioned this yet, but a key aspect of mastering is that it's not about matching. It's about balance, okay? Um, so you're not trying to make everything sound the same. You're just trying to make everything work again, well against everything else that it's it's kind of part of. So in, in the context of an album, that would be... Uh, you know, the other songs on the album. But if you were talking about out in the world at large, then it would be against other songs in the genre or other stuff by the same artist. Um, so yeah, you're definitely, 
you want to make stuff. I mean, so I've got examples in my collection of albums where I don't think they were mastered with that in mind. Tends to be film soundtracks, oddly enough. Uh, I think if you get a film where they license a bunch of music and then they, they release an album, quite often that's done. Somebody just assumes, well, these have all been released before. We'll just put them all together on a CD and release them. Right. They figure the master's probably fine on it. Yeah, that's right. And maybe they've been level matched as part of that process. But very often it seems to me they haven't been EQ balanced. And sometimes that can be interesting, but more often than not for me, it's just dissatisfying because, you know, one song just won't stand up in the way that you expect it to against the others. Right. Um, Because, so that's another point about EQ. People are always asking me, you know, what should... um, heavy rock sound like you know what kind of eq should i aim for with acoustic folk uh, you know is there something different about the way that you eq edm versus uh you know pop or whatever right. and for me the answer is always well no because it all depends on the material you know there is there are rock albums out there that are incredibly lean and dry sounding and there are there's stuff that kind of sounds like a symphony orchestra um, so there's no sweeping answer. It's just per song. I think it, it's per song, it's per album, it's per artist. It's, I mean, that's the nice thing about it. So you might, as a mastering engineer, I might master, well, this happens. Sometimes people come to you and they have a single. So they have they have a, one or two songs that they want mastered. And then those are going to be incorporated into an album later on. It's not at all uncommon to tweak the master of one of those songs that was on the single in the context of the album when you hear it with everything else, right? Because, you know, and for me, I'm kind of old school. An album is still a listening experience. You put it on, you listen to it from beginning to end. Um, So how you feel about one song is going to be influenced by how the previous song sounded and how the song you've got sounds will change the way you think about or feel about the one that comes after it. Right. Makes sense. So... So yeah, so everything is in some kind of context um, and you make the best decisions you can at the, at the time. So if you're given a single song to master, you just do the best you can. But if it's if it's part of another collection, then yeah, you have all of these decisions to make. And then it's about, yeah, not matching, but making sure that the EQs balance, just like the, the levels balance, so that everything kind of makes sense so the people listening don't get distracted by well that sounds weird in comparison to what i just right. listened to or they have to turn down the trebler bass on certain songs on their yeah. on their radios well i mean radio is an interesting example because actually they have extra processing on radio um which pretty much flattens out the eq decisions it's one of the big myths about mastering there's another tangent but it's it's kind of related uh you know everybody wants that radio ready sound the truth is you don't need a radio-ready sound because, especially on FM radio, everything goes through something called an Optimod or something that does the same as an Optimod. Um, and it's a multi-band compression, EQ, clipping, limiting device. And the point is to maximise the level and the consistency of what goes out to be broadcast so that the the signal will work even when there's somewhere where there's a weak reception. Ah. People also use it to kind of creatively sculpt the sound of their station. So, you know, here in the UK, the BBC has three or four different music channels, radio stations. Um, They're all coming from the same organisation, but they use different settings to get a different sound for for each one, a different identity. 
Um, and that stuff completely overrides pretty much any decision you could make in the mixing or the mastering. So you shouldn't um, even go for that because they're going to do it. That Optimal will do it anyway. Yeah, it's it's pretty much going to be any decision you make is probably going to be undone um, by the radio. Now, what you could say is actually I want that radio ready sound on the CD, right? Because when people listen to the CD, I'm not it's, I'm not saying you shouldn't master stuff at all because if you just put your raw mixes out, they might sound fine on the radio where they've been through all this extra processing. But then if somebody buys them or downloads them, then they're not going to sound the way they expect. I'm not actually suggesting people should go for the radio sound because the radio sound often is is over-processed, overdone, um, because of that goal of getting decent uh, signal in weak reception areas. Okay. But having that in mind and kind of striking that balance, finding that sweet spot, is definitely part of the the process. Um, um, now, when you said you were holding your hands up earlier in the show, were you actually doing that? I was actually doing that. Couldn't you hear it? <laughs> See, here I have my arms out to the sides. Here I bring them in. Oh, yeah, now I do hear Now I'm holding them about an inch apart. I, I heard the early reflections off of your palms. Oh, what, yeah, see, that's what happens when you work with engineers. <laughs> um, so what do I want to say about EQ? I mean, well, the challenge, go on. I guess I would, I would ask, you know, what tips do you have for somebody trying to EQ during mastering? Is there any guidelines or any types of rules or do's and don'ts? Definitely. Um, I think rule one that we've talked about before is to use reference tracks. Remember to turn anything that you have that's louder than what you're working on down so that you're not tempted to to over-process, over-crush them initially, at least. Right. Um, you need a reference track that's kind of in a similar genre, a similar style to what you're doing. Um, you need to be prepared for the pain of comparing what you're doing to uh, a commercial production, <laughs> which might have had, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars spent on it. Um, you need something that you think sounds fantastic everywhere. And then you you do your best to match it. Um, so reference tracks, move quickly, you know, be bold. Uh, I think mastering, a lot of mastering is about speed, is about kind of First impressions, you can always change your mind if you think you overdo it. Are they usually um, right, first impressions? My first impressions is usually right. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, not initially. You know, I, I think you've got a huge uh, learning curve with this stuff. So, but when you've had a bit of practice, I think I would say first impressions are usually right our reaction to those first impressions is not necessarily always right. Gotcha. Even for me, even for me, I mean, I, the classic thing for me is, you know, you, you listen through to, you skip through the album to kind of get an impression of the, the overall shape of it. I mean, if there's time, listen to the whole thing, then probably start with track one. I will then spend anywhere up to an hour working on the sound of track one. And then I move on and things speed up a bit. Quite often when I'm halfway through the album, I go back to track one and think, ah, oh, Actually, I'm going to tweak that, you know, based on the context of what's come after as you as you kind of find your way through the sound of the project. Um, so, I mean, I'm not talking about a com complete kind of night and day difference, but definitely little tweaks that, you know, you might, what you had back when you were working on that song sounded great, but 
with hindsight, you know, it, it maybe it's overdone in comparison to this song, or actually there's something later that's even bigger, right. and you need to get closer to that to get them to sit together well. Right. Same happens um, with mixing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's, it's a similar process. Um, there's not really, I mean, I actually have a, a product called Home Mastering EQ, which is a series of five videos where I kind of go through in detail my approach to EQ and my philosophy about it and we can't cram all of that into an episode of into one episode of a podcast but experiment i would say um work through the frequency spectrum and just on a on a bunch of different songs try out different frequencies and see how see what effect it has when you change the eq right um and over time and try and try and remember what those effects are and and pick some consistent frequencies and stick with them i actually there there's a there's a set of frequencies that i recommend as part of the course that people that i use as examples it's not like there's anything magic about them they're just good places to start where people can hear so for example 50 hertz is a, is a great frequency for the the thump in a kick drum and the the real low end depth in a bass guitar okay um you know take take a, a song pile in a bunch, a load of that frequency, pull some of it out, see how it sounds. Um, overall, you need to be aiming for a broadly flat frequency response. Um, so by which I mean, if you look at it on an analyzer, you don't want any huge lumps or holes in the, in the spectrum. Uh, we talked about metering back in the, the 3Ms episode um, so I won't kind of go into a huge amount of depth, but one thing you can try when you're getting started is, you know, if you, if you're looking at your mix on an analyzer and there generally seems to be not much happening at a particular frequency, just try putting in a parametric EQ and gently boosting that frequency and see, see what happens. You know, does it have a good effect? Does it have a bad effect? Right. Um, if, if you think to yourself, oh, well, yeah, that was an improvement. That's actually filled up. You know that that's that's brought out, say the low mids, or you know, some something that was lacking. That's great. If it sounds weird on your monitoring, but the analyzer is showing you probably need more, maybe that's a clue that there's something you need to be careful about in your monitoring. Ah. Um, or maybe it just doesn't suit the arrangement. Um, right. You know, so say for take an extreme example. If you have just a, a, an acoustic guitar and a voice, there's not going to be any super low bass. In that signal so if you boost way low down trying to fill out those low frequencies all you're going to get is thumps and rumbles on the on the mic stand and in the body of the guitar right. and nothing musically useful right, right. Um, and the same thing applies kind of in less specific ways to almost anything you work on um, but yeah aiming for that kind of broadly flat frequency response it wants to probably roll off from about 10k upwards just a kind of gentle slope downwards if you if you make it so that the frequency response looks flat right up into the 16K, it can work with kind of, well, it can work with, say, EDM, you know, where you have artificial sounds, you have lots and lots of high frequency information in some of those synth sounds or some of the percussion sounds. But if it's, a, you know, something that acoustic sounding, rock, or I guess, I mean, pop is, you know, treads that line in between because you have these kind of very produced heavily produced tracks that might have a lot of that stuff in there but i, I guess you need to be careful because if you boost too much of that it can just sound overhyped so you um, roll off then i don't actually roll mm, no i don't 
I don't ever roll off in the sense of a low cut filter because I just think that's too aggressive. Um, but if I'm if I'm listening to something and looking at the analyzer and it's showing loads of stuff going up, so you know, say at 16k, then I'll kind of I use the analyzer for clues. So if that if I'm seeing that, I'll kind of stop and listen and think, is there too how much high energy, high frequency energy there? And if I feel that there is, then I would experiment probably with a with a high shelf. Shelf, yeah, I was gonna say. Just just to kind of gently ease it back and 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 tweak the cue of that shelf so that you it's not too abrupt. Right. Um or you could put a parametric really high up, but then you kind of just it's kind of like having a different shaped shelf because the the kind of the top end of the EQ is probably beyond the point where you would hear the effects of it. Right. Yeah. If you have a if you have a parametric up at say 18k, the that's the minimum frequency. You're going to be rolling it off down from there. You're also going to be rolling it off up from there, but right. none of those frequencies ever make it onto a CD um, yeah. or into a, an MP3 file. If you're, you need to be careful, you're working at 2496 because then there's a possibility that those frequencies might make it hmm. into the final signal and there might be something there that you care about. Whether anybody except for your dog will hear it, that's a whole other aspect <laughs> that we can maybe talk about in another show if people are interested. Um, my cat hates speakerphone on my iPhone. Ah, so there's got to be something in there. Well, speakerphone on iPhones does generally sound horrible. Um, <laughs> that's interesting, though. There might be lots of kind of really unnatural high-frequency things in there because, you know, that that's going to be a data-compressed signal. You're talking about actually listening to a mobile phone signal, yeah? Yeah, if I'm having a conversation on the phone, she she tries to sit on the phone a lot of times. <laughs> that, that could just be an attention-grabbing thing, though. It could. She's like, get off the phone. Pay attention to me. It's, Although, now cats are not needy, are they? Not in that way. Some are. Yeah, some are. <laughs> Yours is, right? She, she's different. She, some days, yes. Some days, no. But it just seems to be that speakerphone. The other one thinks that whenever I'm talking on the phone, I'm talking to her. But this is a little different. See, the scientist in me now wants to install some kind of app on your phone so that we can roll out all the high end and see do whether it. that stops bothering her. Yeah, we should do that. And we'll, we'll make an app out of it. We'll call it like the, the cat pleaser that that's probably would make some money you know <laughs> <laughs> okay so i have a question for you how many different eq plugins do you have and how many do you would you typically use if you, you don't do your own mastering but if you did you know how many do you think would be a sensible number to use i just use one i, I really like the parametric eq it's called pro eq in studio one i use it for everything um, I would use one on a master, probably. Good answer. Thank well you. done. <laughs> um, because the, I see this so often, you, you know, you'll maybe post it on YouTube or somebody, you know, on a forum somewhere and they're like, this is my mastering chain. And they've got four or five EQs stacked up. <laughs> um, and they're all kind of fighting against each other. Um, and none of them are level match, but let's not open that kind of worms till next week. Um, the not all EQs are the same, you know. Yeah. Um, there are definitely some beautiful hardware analog EQ units out there that have a certain special something. There are definitely some great plug-in EQs that have a different flavor or a different sound. Most of that is to do with the shape of the curves that they use, okay. you know. So if you have the kind of classic Pultec style EQ you can get this interesting thing where it's kind of simultaneously boosting and cutting 
at certain frequencies, if you use it in certain ways, yeah. that kind of stuff. I'm not so interested in all that kind of stuff when I'm mastering because I want complete control. I mean, if you have happen to have one of those EQs that gives you exactly what you want, that's great. Um, but when, especially when it gets to mastering, I want to, you know, I want to be able to boost there and cut there and know that everything is doing exactly what I want. I want complete control. Like no extra color. No extra color. No, yeah. I mean, because again, you know, for me, it's all about being invisible. Um, that's not to say I never use that stuff, but I think the it's much more valuable to really understand and be able to use one EQ well than it is, you know, what, what's a better use of your time? To spend half an hour getting the perfect EQ setting with your favorite EQ or to spend half an hour choosing which EQ unit to use? Right. And then, you know, I just... Whenever I, I'm always, I mean, like everybody else, I'm tempted by these things. You know, the new plugins come out, so I download the demo and I play with it and I experiment. And I kind of get to the end and then I compare it to what I would do normally. And I just think there's, there's you know, there's a million different ways of getting to the same thing. I you know, one of the things about being a mastering engineer is having this end goal in mind, having this end result, knowing where you want it, the song to be. Um, and it doesn't really matter what you use to get there. You know, within reason. If you've right. got a kind of six-band graphic EQ that you found in the attic of your house, it's probably not suitable for mastering. Right. But these days, most digital EQ plugins, I mean, a lot of them sound identical, in fact. You know, they have these all these amazing different interfaces, and there there's a site out there somewhere where some guy is going through and manages to prove that these EQs, you have to set the numbers slightly differently, but they end up sounding exactly the same. Which um, one do you use for mastering? So... My, I mean, my favorite mastering uh, stuff digitally is the TC Electronics uh, plugins, which come with the, the I use a PowerCore 6000 Firewire expansion thing. Yeah. That, that's discontinued. You can't get it now. So because people keep asking me this, I've been experimenting. I really like the FabFilter EQ. I hear lots of good things about it. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I don't, I'm not saying that it has anything magical in the sound, but it does what I want. It has a great interface. It's very flexible. Um, I like the fact that you can click on any band and immediately solo it. That's really nice. If you're, if you're trying to pick out a problem frequency, hmm. you can just you can say, okay, on this band, press solo, and you hear only what is being affected by that band. Wow. So you know whether you've got it in the right place or not. That's great. Um, it's got good analyzer functions on it. Um, but, yeah, there's a bunch, you know, most of the, uh, most of the big names... I would say, are going to give you a great result um, in this day and age. I, I can't think of an EQ. There's an interesting thing with the Ozone EQ. Yeah. When I go into that, I always uh, switch it to, let me think, digital EQ. I think it has a setting called like clinical or analytical or something like that. Um, and until I do that, it doesn't really do what I expect. Really? Because, you know, the thing with EQs is you you when you get to know one really well and you use it kind of, you know it inside out, you know, you you know what sound you expect when you dial in 6 dBs at such and such a frequency sure. with such and such a cue. And for me, Ozone doesn't do that until I go into that, I forget exactly the setting, but it's it's the digital thing and it's it's the, the, the really precision one. Um, and at that point, suddenly it behaves exactly as I expect it to. Interesting. Um, again, I don't really think it's anything to do with the sound because at the end of the day, you're just manipulating the frequency spectrum. I mean, I, I am a fan of linear phase EQ. 
in mastering. Um, probably we don't want to get into too much depth about it, but um, all analog EQs introduce phase shifts into the signal when you use them. And that may or may not have an influence on the way that you hear the sound. Um, with digital, it's possible to have an EQ that has zero phase change on the signal or very little phase change on the signal. Why, why doesn't everybody use them then? Well, they, they the one of the reasons is that they have latency. Um, so in... Uh, and you use them in a mix, it can be tricky, especially if you you know if you want real time monitoring for people recording and stuff. Gotcha. Um, it also increases the processing overhead. You also get this thing called uh, pre pre ringing. Um, when you have a traditional uh, filter, EQ filter, and an analog EQ filter, the 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 filter rings slightly after the signal after the signal hits the the EQ. With a, a phase linear digital uh, filter, it actually rings before the signal huh. hits the EQ. It's, that sounds kind of counterintuitive, but because there's this delay so that it can make sure that the phase doesn't get messed up, the side effect of that is... So you're unlikely to hear that stuff. Actually, if anybody's interested, there's a really good um, video out there that compares those two. We could put it in the show notes um, made by the people who do FabFilter because one of the nice things about FabFilter is you can choose whether you want the EQ to be minimum phase, which is the kind of the normal, or linear phase, which is what I'm talking about, or actually somewhere in between. Oh, no kidding. Um, which is quite a cool feature. Um, so if you use a low cut on a kick drum, you might hear this kind of, it's almost like a shadow of the of the, the sound before it hits you. So with something like something percussive, you know, it can it can kind of blur or smear the transient slide. Oh, so I that see. would be that would be a negative. If I'm honest, the number of times when I've heard that happening in a mastering session and it's disturbed me, few and far between. Right. Um, again, if I'm honest, the the benefits of using phase linear EQ only really comes in with really sharp cuts or boosts. You know, if you have kind of fairly gentle curves, which I use a lot in mastering, I try not to 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 narrow the the stuff that I'm doing down too much unless there's some kind of specific problem. But when you do have those narrower cues, those narrower peaks and, and cuts in the EQ shape, that's when the phase linear EQ can actually have um, an effect on the sound when, when it's a benefit. I so, see. yeah. Any recommendations on those? Oh, the, well, the fab filter, I guess. Fab filter is fine. I mean, most... Um, the, the the digital setting that I mentioned in Ozone, I think, is is phase linear. Gotcha. Uh, waves definitely have a phase linear EQ. I mean, again, you know, this is the thing. Every, up to a point, an EQ is an EQ is an EQ. Um, you know, there there are ones where we like the interface better. There are ones where we like... Because, you know, back in the day, if you had an analog EQ, it was limited by the components that were available. It was limited by the price. It was limited by the specification. It was limited by the tolerance of the components. Um, you know, the, how accurate everything, all the values could be set in a, um, a piece of hardware. So the designers had to make all of these compromises and they would choose what they found musically useful that they could get with the required quality at the required price. None of that stuff applies to digital EQ. Right. You know, it's just, it's just numbers. It's just processing. You can pretty much do whatever you like. Um... So 
yeah, a parametric digital EQ is going to sound or should sound almost identical to any other parametric digital EQ, unless it's deliberately doing something interesting, you know, whether it's if it's got some kind of modeling effect for some kind of analog flavor right. or, uh, you know, it's emulating some kind of classic piece of hardware um, or it's kind of doing something deliberately weird. It makes sense. And for me, it's all about precision. It's all about, you know, I don't want to use the word clinical because what I do isn't clinical. It's all about feel and, uh, you know, making people want to move or, or, or emotion. And But <laughs> I do like the EQ that I use to achieve those goals to be quite clinical in the sense that, <laughs> you know, I, I want to do exactly what I want to do and nothing else. Right. So, right. yeah. Yeah, clinical is not a very, um, doesn't have a lot of, how do we say, like fun attached to it? Actually, it reminds me, um, I, way back, I did a recording session for uh, a fantastic band called The Million Stars, um, and Rose, the singer, um, put up a, well, this tells you how long ago it was, it was a MySpace post um, after the mastering session. Um, and she said, uh, I'm going to paraphrase it, it was, so she said something like, you know, mastering is this weird thing where a complete stranger listens to your music really loud and judges it. One word, girls, gynecology. <laughs> and I actually, I was so startled. I, I, that hadn't occurred to me, you know. I, I'd never, it's, it's, it, it was pretty early in my career and, and it had not occurred to me that, that artists would feel nervous coming to a mastering session as a, and, and, you know, kind of having their stuff listen because I'm just there to get the best possible result for them. But they don't know that, right? You know? No, I, and it's sudden. I get that too. I get that too. That's probably a lot of emotions connected with it. Like they worked very hard to produce this product, which they're proud of, and it's put a lot of work into. And what? Who's this guy? Like, why does he have the right? In some in some cases. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, why does he have the right? But also, you know, kind of. I mean, everybody when they're when you're working on a on a piece of music is is aware of its flaws. You know, you you feel vulnerable. You're it's you're yeah. exposing. You know, you do the best you can, but. It, you, Nobody ever gets anything they think is perfect, you know. Um, so, to, so, yeah, to have somebody kind of judge it from on high. Um, That's interesting. So um, why did I tell that anecdote? Clinical. There you go. Clinical gynecology. <laughs> that was an aspect that I had. So I, 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 ever since then, I have always tried to be kind of sensitive to, you know, and, and kind of kind. And, I mean, I was anyway, but I, I tried, you know. Well, now that you're aware of that, sure. Yeah, I, I make a particular effort to, you know, kind of try and help people feel comfortable as part of that process. Because, you know, the, <clears throat> the last thing you want is for the person you're working with to just be kind of sitting there squirming, going, "Ah, oh, no, this is." You I should really so screw with people. You should really screw with people though, and be like, "This just sucks." I got, <laughs> you know, how much work I got to do to this thing now. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe after you know one or two albums in, when right. when I know I'm because, yeah, I, I I think people are more kind of. I think people are a lot more, that happens more than maybe we think, you know? Um, you mean mastering are, and engineers being um, like critical? I guess just people, meaning that people come into into the, the that situation feeling insecure oh, yeah. about, what, uh, about what they've done, you know? Probably and every kind time. Of, probably every time, close to. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's up to us to kind of help them. It's Well, it's like being a producer, you know, um, or even a musician. I mean, everybody says it so often, so much of this stuff is about people. Yeah, um, you know, and it's it's about 
you know, giving good feedback without cr- crushing somebody's hopes and dreams. <laughs> um, so I think the other thing to, to say is we mentioned it last week. Are you going to have a maxim of the day? I do have a mastering okay. maxim. Yep. No, I'm just patience. Checking. I was just checking. Grasshopper. Um, yeah, we mentioned it briefly last week. The I do most of my EQ prior to the compression which is why the EQ episode has come after the compression episode because we're going backwards in the chain until at the end of the thing we get back to the source. Um, You don't have to do it that way. I just think it works better that way. I think having a balanced EQ, having that EQ response with no huge lumps or dips in it, when you hit the compression, is going to get you the best, most invisible, most transparent results, which is my goal for the mastering stage. I see. So... By all means, do tweaks afterwards if if that works for you. But I think for anybody who's kind of new with this and, and playing with it, I mean, it makes things more complicated because, as I said, any EQ change you make is going to be, to some extent, fighting with the compression. Exactly. But that's actually also an opportunity, especially if you use multiband compression, where you can, uh, you know, say for example, if you've if you've got the the low end, you can add thump into a kick drum. The compression will control some of that thump. And then as the compressor releases, the frequency that you are boosting for thump is going to add richness to the rest of the bass to the low end. I see. Okay. Whereas if you do it after the compression, it just adds thump in comparison to everything else and it kind of stays there. Hmm. So I think it takes, it's probably harder to learn it that way. And I think definitely when you're teaching yourself to do EQ, it's good to start out without any kind of dynamics processing. Sure. But when you start to kind of put it all together and experiment with mastering your own stuff, yeah. EQing into a compressor, uh, I think gives you a lot of control and kind of is part of the, the secret of the, that we were talking about at the beginning of kind of being able to achieve more than you would think is possible right. when you're working on a stereo track. Right. So any questions you have before I reveal this week's mastering maxim? No, hit it, hit us up with it. Okay, so this one um, is maybe going to be slightly counterintuitive. Don't be afraid to EQ frequencies that aren't there. Hmm. The fear being you're going to add some noise or something you just you don't know. I guess. I mean, also in the sense of it's not necessarily pointless. So earlier on, I used that example of the kind of the acoustic guitar and the vocal where boosting the really low bass is not going to achieve anything useful. Right. That may be true or maybe it won't be true because the the point of this maxim is every EQ has a frequency that you choose, but it doesn't only do stuff at that frequency, right? The EQ has a shape. If it's a, if it's a bell curve, if it's a parametric, it slopes off gently on either side. If it's a shelf then the, the frequency you choose is the minus 3 dB point, where you're 3 dB below the, the, the boost. Um, but it still has an influence higher up the frequency spectrum or lower down if you're using a high shelf. And that can be useful. So, for example, if you boosted the really low bass in an acoustic and acoustic guitar and vocal song, there's probably nothing musically useful at 50 hertz that you're boosting. But the kind of the top end of that frequency curve... That you're adding in might do something nice at the kind of the 100 hertz area and it could be a different shape than you would get if you used a shelf or 
So how how could you know that? You're saying if you have nothing at a certain frequency, go ahead and try to boost in that those areas just to see what happens? Or do you get good enough that you know the top part of the curve will affect something kind of at the end of that frequency? Event, eventually you get good enough. Okay. But the... It's more a case of so so. Let's say you know you have your acoustic and vocal, and you're thinking, oh, I'd, I'd like some more richness in the bass. You know, the that acoustic guitar sounds nice, but it just doesn't quite sing out. So you try boosting at say, well, say 100 hertz. You yeah. know, there's going to be some notes down down in the low end of the guitar part at 100 hertz, but it kind of sounds way over the top. And yeah. of course, because that boost is at 100, it also that's going to affect stuff right up to 200, 500 hertz. So the chances are it could well start to sound muddy and you know kind of cluttered. In the in the low mids, so you might be tempted to give up at that point. But my suggestion would be, well, just try sweeping that frequency down a little bit mm. and listen to what happens there, because you're still going to be boosting at 100 hertz, it's just left, just less, right. But the top end of that boost is going to have a different effect on the rest of the sound. Yeah, I like that. And man. That's a great tip. Thank you. There you go. That's why I saved it for the maxim. I think it's, uh, and the same thing applies in in the high frequencies right. as well. You know, you chances are most people can't hear eighteen kilohertz. That doesn't mean you should never boost up at eighteen kilohertz because you might just find that that tail end of the shape, as it kind of comes down into the sixteen, twelve, ten k region, is just right for what you want to do. Right. Or in terms of a cut, if you if you can't find a high shelf where you're trying to roll off some of that high end that is having the effect that you want, experiment with a parametric that where you're cutting way higher, where probably there's nothing that anybody can hear, but it's the shape of the, the EQ curve lower down that might be useful. Oh, and I have a bonus Damn. tip for you, which uh, this is this is something I use a lot. And actually, it's kind of related to, we were talking about kind of the Pultec EQ shape um, earlier on. If you do that low-end boost... And you do find that that you're getting some some mud in the mid frequency, the low mid frequencies. Don't be afraid to couple a boost with a cut. Okay, so this is really hard to convey on the radio, but I'm kind of drawing a shape with my hand, and it's kind of so there's a lump at the at the the low end, you know, maybe 50 hertz to add some depth to the kick drum sound, and then that curve dips below so that there's a cut a little bit higher up, and then returns to normal. So you can use a boost with a cut in a slightly different frequency to kind of balance it to uh, to avoid the muddiness. The, the, well, it could be muddiness or you could you could do the same thing up high, you know, you could have right. <clears throat> you could have a boost to add some air but basically just using, canceling out kind of the end of the bell. So it exactly. Affect, it's yeah. Yeah, and 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 sometimes even reducing it even slightly more so that there's actually a little I mean, one, I hardly ever do this, but if you have, say you have an old recording with loads and loads of hiss in and you just want to roll out the high frequencies, so you would use a high cut cut filter, that's, chances are that's going to give you a really muffled sounding result. Yeah. You can go in with a little boost kind of at the point where it starts to roll off and just lift out a little bit of that presence just before the kind of the curve disappears off down to, to zero just to help give the impression that there's a little bit of air left in that signal. Hmm. Um, and you might want to use that, actually, and it's not so much of a mastering tip, but you can use a similar, similar approach to that in the mix, where, you know, let's say, um, okay, so you've got a kick drum, and you've got bleed from the snare and the hi-hat on the kick drum mic. 
their high frequency stuff. So you put in a high cut to roll those things out to kind of clean it up a little bit. But then the whole kick drum starts to sound a bit dull. Yeah. So you can go into a boost then at kind of say 4K or somewhere to, to try and get the click of the of the sound back in, that kind of stuff. So yeah, you know, I guess you could sum all of that up by saying be creative. You know, don't uh if if you try the thing that your gut instinct told you you needed and it didn't quite work, don't be afraid to kind of experiment with something a little bit crazy to try and help make it work if you need to. I like that. Yeah, I think I do that with uh, my EQing a lot of times. I'll, I'll just grab a point on my parametric EQ and close my eyes and just drag it to the left and drag it to the right and move it up and move it down. I won't even know where it is, but I'll listen for the sound. And it, it's kind of like what you said. You, you boost up the spot you think it needs it, and then you're like, well, that didn't sound quite right. And that's when, I, that's when I'll just close my eyes and just start taking it left or taking it right and see what happens. So I'm kind of applying the maxim without kind of really knowing that I was doing it exactly. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, it worked. Yeah, it works great. Absolutely. Um, so uh, there's one final little thing I have to add. Another bonus? Well, it's not so much a bonus. It's a it's a word of caution. Oh. Let's say you did use that technique that I've just mentioned with the with the acoustic guitar. You could get both things, right? You could get the that little kind of warming up, that extra low end richness that you wanted, and thumps and bumps, right? Yeah. At that stage, either you go in with a low cut to get rid of those thumps and bumps if they're low enough down that you can do that without affecting the boost that you just added. Right. Or maybe you need to go in with a tool like, you know, Isotope RX or some other kind of more detailed processing uh, to to fix those problems. Because, um, you know, a perfect acoustic guitar bump uh, performance is not going to have any thumps and bumps in the performance, right? Yeah. But nobody's perfect. Hmm. So, yeah, it, Again, it's kind of, you don't necessarily have to give up. That's, of course, where mastering starts to get expensive for people and where it might have been better to throw it back to them in the mix and say, take out all of those thumps and bumps first and then bring it back to me. Right, um, yeah, that, but, that get tedious, I can imagine. It's, um, well, I, I don't mind doing it if somebody wants to pay for it. Right. Um, but, you know, in, if we're kind of helping people out with mastering their own stuff, you know, if you've, if you've got that flexibility to do it yourself, you know, that's the kind of example of not leaving too much to the mastering stage. I see. Very cool, man. Good EQ knowledge. I hope it was helpful to someone out there. And uh, if you're listening to this and it was helpful, please uh, head over, leave a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this. Um, give us a rating. Tell your friends. Share it on social media. Do whatever you need to do to help get the word out because we'd really appreciate it. Absolutely. You know, people write in saying, I love the show. You know, keep going, keep doing it. And they... The only thing I can say to them is, yeah, tell your friends. Let other people know about the show, and then let's just share the the knowledge. Absolutely. Well, great show, Ian. Um, again, I'm Steve Cherubino. You can find me over at edmer.com. We've got a lot of shows there over about EDM stuff and plugins and sound design and cool knowledge like this. You can also find this show there. And... Uh, you guys can find my website at productionadvice.co.uk. Um, there's loads of information about recording, mixing, mastering your own music there. Uh, or find me on Facebook or Twitter at Ian Shepherd. Sounds good. And if you want to find out more about this show, go to themasteringshow.com. We have the main website set up there with all the show notes, links, pictures, all the cool stuff that we talk about during the show. And absolutely sign up for our mailing list over there so you don't miss any future episodes and any announcements we have about what we're doing over here. 
Hope you guys enjoyed it. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. 